Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Corrales Radio, and I am your host, Jeff Godbold. I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, as always, Corrales Radio is brought to you by our sponsors, Reptile Basics Incorporated and Cold-Blooded Cafe. So remember that if you guys haven't had a chance yet, uh, you need some things for your uh, for your collection, different husbandry items, if you're looking for a new uh, cage or rack menu bridge over at RBI. You can find them on Facebook or on the web. Let them know that I sent you. They'll get you all taken care of. As for rodents, if you're looking for a new rodent supplier, there's a lot of shady guys out there. But uh, as you all know, uh, Cold-Blooded Cafe is not one of them. So make sure you hit those guys up. You can find them on Facebook. Let Levi know that I sent you. They'll get you all taken care of and your animals will definitely benefit from buying a quality rodent. So I um, want to thank you guys for tuning in. Um, as you know, uh, real quick, um, the, uh, the podcast is kind of growing um, to a point where I'm somewhat humbled and impressed, and I wanted to uh, make it 
um, possible for you guys to have more of an investment in the show. So for that reason, I created Patreon. Well, I created a Patreon page for Corrales Radio. Um, if you go to www.patreon.com forward slash Corrales Radio, there will be a d- bunch of different tiers on the right side of the screen. You can anywhere from a uh, dollar all the way up to $50 or $100, I believe. And you get different reward packages. Obviously, the more you donate, the more you get back. So if you're looking for some, you know, a way to, to really support the show and uh, get some exclusive content, um, some live chats, whatnot, uh, make sure you go over there. Huge dividends for me because it helps me keep the show going and helps me incur the uh, the monthly expenses that it costs to run the show. So, again, that's patreon.com forward slash Corrales Radio. That brings me to um, issue, and that is, well, not an issue, but uh, I wanted to give a shout-out to Cole. Um, he has uh, supported the Patreon page, and Cole has uh, pledged um, one of the larger tiers, and he's asked that I uh, give some Candoya love out there. So I wanted to do that as, any, as anyone who is um, wa- uh, listening to this, you guys know I used to keep a lot of Candoya. And uh, there's not a lot of people out there working with Candoya. They're kind of a unique genus of boa, um, typical, uh, typically found in the uh, Solomon Islands um, and some parts of uh, Indonesia. But I wanted to um, talk about one species in particular, and that is Candoya bibrini australis, otherwise known as the Solomon Island tree boa. Now, this is going to be kind of a shorter episode. Um, I've had a hard time finding folks to come on the show and talk about Candoya. And since I did Candoya for a while, um, I'm just going to basically relay my, my experiences with them. I disagree. I don't really care. Um, again, I'm just relaying what I found to work in my collection and just my observations working with, uh, with Australis. So now to begin, I had a pretty sizable group. Um, I had anywhere from, I want to say, uh, 15 to 20 animals at one point. Um, all but one were wild caught. Um, and, you know, I got to be honest, the one captive born animal was supposedly captive born from a wild caught uh, female that came from um, Ben Siegel. And that animal would not feed for me. I could not get it to take off. I had offered um, frozen thawed uh, pinks, frozen thawed um, poppers frozen thawed rats. Um, I had tried live of both. I had used uh, frogs, live frogs. I had used frozen thawed frogs. I had scented frogs um, or scented uh, my rodents with the frogs. Couldn't get it to feed. I had used um, I used live uh, anoles. And this animal was very small. It was, for the age, it was very small. Um, for whatever reason, this animal would not feed. I don't know what it was. I switched up caging. I switched up temperatures. I ended up giving it no heat whatsoever to see if maybe I was keeping it uh, too hot. Um, tried everything I could and could not get it to feed. So I threw it in the freezer. Um, I didn't want, if I did get that animal to feed, I didn't want it passing on the uh, stubbornness and whatnot to its offspring. So I threw it in the freezer and I didn't know what was going on with it. So I didn't want it to infect the rest of my collection. So um, 
Some of you may agree or disagree with that, but, you know, sometimes tough choices have to be made, especially when you're working with a species that at the time I was working with them, very few people were keeping them. They had kind of fallen off, and I knew uh, I knew of one or two suppliers in the country that brought in a large group, and I bought up as many as I could. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure the ones that I was working with were solid, so I ended up throwing that one in the freezer. Now, I want to start off by talking about temperament. Um, temperament for me, these animals are extremely placid. Um, I had a couple large females and one male um, that were somewhat temperamental, and they would bite me whenever I took them out. But that being said, they had a very slow response, so um, it was really easy to avoid. And, um, again, I found them uh, as a vast majority to be very placid, very docile, very curious, slow-moving uh, animals. Um, you didn't really need to, to – they didn't really – hone in on like quick movements they were very very laid back so if you're worried about them being bitey them being aggressive or defensive because they are a tree boa i would say that's um that's not applicable to the species in my experience they were very very easy to handle very easy to uh to keep when it came to temperament, you could go in cage, do whatever you needed in the cage, and you didn't have to worry about the animals biting you. So, temperament-wise, they were a dream for me. Um, size: uh, males are extremely smaller than females. So, if you have a small uh, male, that's typical. I would say that a full, full-grown adult. Breeding size male is probably the size of maybe a year and a half old Amazon tree boa. They're really not that big. I'm saying maybe 200 grams on probably the larger size, um, maybe 150 to probably 250 is average, but very small. Um, and females. Females were probably the size of a breedable female Amazon tree boa, but a smaller female. So you're not going to have um, female um, uh, Solomon Island tree boas at, you know, six feet long or anything like that. They're not that long. I'm saying they're probably more in the three to four feet range. And one thing that's cool about these guys, it's pretty unique, is um, I found, uh, now I did not produce any babies, but I did find um, whenever I saw or breeding, um, you know, behavior out of the males um, and, and the females, I did see that multiple males were needed. So if you're going to have um, a group of Candoya bibberni australis, I would say um, err on the side of more males than females. So if you want to have... Uh, Basically, the, the rule of thumb I used is you want to have at least two males to every one female. And I'd probably say if you want to play it safe, I'd get three males to every one female. So, I mean, you can do the math. But, you know, um, I, I think three females at a minimum is a pretty good uh, place to start and just start adding males where, where and when you can. Um, 
a lot of people sell them for different prices, and they're not around that often. Uh, the Solomon Islands are very particular in opening up their exports, so uh, you kind of got to get them when you can because they could open up and they close for 10 years like they did in the early 2000s. So um, you really got to jump on them whenever you see them. Otherwise, you may not see them for a very long time. But size, are very manageable. I kept my adult females in the CB80 tub, so it's basically the CB70 with a um, with more height. Um, if you want to keep them in a cage, I'd probably say, you know, uh, you could keep them. I know some people keep them uh, communally. Uh, I did that with some of mine, and I kept some individually. It just, I again, I was one of the only people working with them, so I was trying to see what worked and what didn't work as far as breeding, trying to basically just learn what they're what they're all about. So I kept um, a group in a um, Basically, it was, I don't know, it was like a 24, probably a 24-inch cube would work good for a group of them. Um, you could keep probably three in a, I don't know, 24 by 18 by 18. Some may say that's too small. Um, but these guys, you know, again, the males are tiny. Like, you really don't need very much size for the males. I mean, you could keep them in, you know, a, uh, I don't remember the actual quart size, but it's, you know, 15 quart tub, but with some height on it because they do like to climb. Um, I found them to be similar to Amazon tree boas in the sense that they're not 100% arboreal. Um, they are an arboreal species. They have a prehensile tail um, that wraps around uh, branches and whatnot, but um, I have found them to, you know, just as fine be, you know, curled up underneath some leaf litter or underneath some mulch. Uh, they like to wedge themselves in between things. So, um, you know, just because your animals may be grounded doesn't mean they're sick. It just means that they're doing what they do. You know, they they will perch on the ground and they'll uh, perch um, on branches. Now, they're like Amazons in that they are drapers. So you want to have three to four uh, points of contact on your perches. If you want to put just a horizontal perch in there, you're probably not going to see them um, uh, perching very often. Now, I got around that because I would take horizontal perches and put them very close together so that the animal could drape if they wanted to. So it would be like, you know, I, I put a horizontal perch in there, and then I take another one, put it about two inches away or maybe an inch and a half away from that one, and they could easily drape on that. So it made them feel more secure, and then they would perch more often. I have a photo of that on my website at goblinexotics.com, if you go into the About page and look in the gallery, it'll show you a uh, small female draped on two horizontal perches in a grow-out rack that I had. Um, also, uh, let's talk about temps. They're from the Solomon Islands. They're a rainforest species. They don't see a lot of heat. If you let your temps get above 85 degrees, you're probably going to stress them out and they're going to go off heat for you. I would definitely say keeping these guys, the optimal range is anywhere between 80 and 85 degrees, and they do absolutely fine. The uh, caveat to that, I would say for uh, gestating females that could possibly be gravid, um, I would definitely give them more heat um, because they obviously are going to need it. It's a long gestation period for them from what I've heard, uh, just like any candoria species. So um, they are going to need a little bit more time to, uh, to develop those babies inside of them. But, um, you know, there's not a, a 
a large variation in seasonal changes in the Solomon Islands. I mean, you could pull up an app and put it on your phone um, or uh, through your, your um, weather app, and you'll see that really there's just a dry season and a monsoon season where there's heavy, heavy rain. There's not a huge fluctuation in summer temps versus winter temps. So my thoughts are that uh, when you want to talk about breeding these guys, is that you probably want to look more into food cycling instead of temperature cycling. Um, I don't think that temperature cycling is going to be as vital as uh, food cycling. Again, produce any, but I'm just going off of their natural range and what I've seen and witnessed um, and everything that I've read about the Solomon Islands. And, uh, you know, a lot of these equatorial species don't really see much of a seasonal change in temps. But there, um, uh, I'll get more into breeding here in a, in a little bit, um, but I wanted to talk about cycling. Uh, cycling is, or I'm sorry, not cycling, feeding. Um, excuse me. Uh, feeding for me is something that everybody is worried about with Kenzoia. I think that if you know, I think it's partially a, a, a misunderstanding um, on what these animals need to feed. Again, every animal I had, and I had anywhere from 15 to 20 at one point, were wild caught for the exceptional one. And the one that was wild or that was captive born was the one that didn't feed. Everything else fed within the first of three offerings. Um, and I didn't have to do anything crazy. Um, now, they will take lizards and geckos at any time. They will take them. Um, and that's typically what they feed on in the wild. But, you know, when I brought them in and I let them settle in for a couple days, I'd have about 50% that would take frozen thawed, unscented uh, mice on the first go. And I, I really did not see that big of an issue with the adults. Now, I had sub-adults and adults. I've heard the babies can be very tricky. Um, but I know, uh, you know, it, I think Asper are probably the, the easiest of the Kendoid species to get switched over to rodents. But, you know, they don't have extremely large litters like a, uh, like a Pulsani, so you're not going to be dealing with 17 to 20 babies, even more than that. Um, and that all want to eat lizards and geckos. So you're probably going to have a smaller litter of maybe anywhere from four to eight, and that's probably going to be it. So it's a little bit more manageable. You know, you're you're trying to focus feeding those animals and getting them switched over to rodents is dealing with, you know, 25 to 60 babies. You know, that, that could be a, a real headache. Um, so feeding, if you do have any um, that are very tough to uh, to switch over, I think scenting's a really good option. I know that Reptilinx makes a frog scent that you can put on your rodents, and they also make a actual uh, prey item that's got frog in it. Um, so it also has the smell. So you can try that. Um, there have been uh, some people that have talked about, you know, basically just switching the scent up and offering them something different, finding what works. Um, I, again, I really didn't have that hard of an issue. I had a couple that I would scent 
I'd rub the um, the ventral part of the anole or the gecko on the prey item's nose, and it would take it. And I had a couple that I would actually leave the prey item in overnight, and I would just sit it in there, and it'd be gone in the morning. So I had some that would never strike, never wrap, but I would just take the thawed prey item and lay it in the in the tub, and it'd be gone in the morning. And it was like that every week. So, you know, they're again, they're kind of a shyer species, but they're um, very different from anything else. And if you look locationally, you know, most of your boas are in North, Central, and South America. You know, you've got a few over in Madagascar, um, but the Solomon Islands are, are kind of this like isolated um, uh, place. So what that tells me is that they're probably one of the more, at least you know, my personal opinion, they're probably one of the more uh, primitive um, branches of voids out there. And I think that you know, if you look at them, you can definitely see. Um, they have a little bit more of a prehistoric look to them. They have a flat head. They're very, very uh, um, reminiscent of a tree viper. Um, and they they change colors. One of the coolest things about your uh, your Australis is, you know, you may have a dark brown animal with pink highlights in the morning, and then you go in there, you know, later in the day, and that thing's olive green. So they they do change colors quite a bit, and that's that's typical with. Um, all Candoya, but I found it to be especially typical with the Australis. They seem to have the more drastic uh, color change depending on the time of day or at night than compared to the other uh, species of Candoya. So that's something that I think is just really cool. So you could go in there and, you know, if you're looking to buy one, you know, ask what its light and dark phase looks like. Uh, any breeder or any uh, unless you're buying them wholesale, any breeder that's selling these guys should be willing to provide you with a light and dark phase photo so you can kind of see what the changes come into. Um, because I, I can honestly promise that you may buy an animal because you really like the dark color, and when that animal comes in, it's a completely different color, and you're sitting there going, wait a minute, this isn't the animal that I bought. Or this isn't why I bought that animal. So make sure you ask the, the breeder, the one selling you, to provide you with a light and dark face photo. Anytime I sold my animals, that's what I did for uh, potential buyers. So it's a good thing to keep in mind because they do change colors, which I personally love. But you know, teach their own. They, some folks may not find that as as cool as I do. So um, that's just uh, kind of a caveat to working with these guys. Um, so yeah, the feeding should not be an issue. Now these guys. You know, I've heard people, um, some folks that have kept these for a long time talk about slow metabolism and whatnot, and I'm not here to say that, you know, they're wrong, but I'm here to tell you without a shadow of a doubt with every animal I kept that that was not my observation. They were always hungry. They always wanted to eat, and they were always willing to eat with minimal teasing, and I'm, they would digest their food fairly quickly. Now, I'm not an, I, I don't feed any of my animals on a weekly basis, but could literally feed your females probably every seven to 10 days and they would not get obese. Now, I didn't go anything higher than just an adult mouse. Um, and you probably don't need to go 
anything larger than a hopper mouse for males, but an adult mouse for females is fine. Um, and an adult mouse or a, a hopper mouse for males is, is good because, again, you want your males to be pretty small. I mean, they're going to probably be a third of the size of your females. Um, but, you know, feeding – these guys, I think, have a faster metabolism than people give them credit. I really do. Um, because when my animals would feed, they'd defecate pretty quickly right after that. And that's feeding them on an empty stomach. So, I, you know, I don't necessarily buy into that slow metabolism thing that everybody talks about. I do think they're slow growers. Um, and I don't know how that correlates with food. Um, I just know that whenever I would feed my animals, they would have a, a bowel movement pretty quickly after it, within like two to three days, and they'd be ready to eat again. So I had um, probably a large majority of my collection that would eat whenever offered, and if I wanted to feed them every three or four days, they'd probably take it. So um, the exception to that is males during breeding season. So one thing you should know about males are when males fast, they fast for a longer time period than other species that you've worked with. They're going to fast for probably four months, and there's nothing that they're going to do to to go back on fat. Like um, I had males that were with females and males that did not see females that would go on fat like clockwork. And they would stop feeding around January, and it would be April or May or June before I could get them feeding again. I had a couple that would actually fast for six months every year. Um, so, I mean, enjoy the break because you're not going to get that with any other species. But these guys, um, definitely the males will go fast. And sometimes, you know, getting them back on food, it's a little bit slower process. You know, they're not just going to come out of the gates wanting to feed. You know, they're going to feed when they're ready. But when you have an animal that hasn't eaten in three months, don't freak out. It's just probably a male being a male. And they could go for longer than that without any problems whatsoever on their um, on their weight. You don't have to worry about them losing a ton of weight or anything like that. So um, they just seem to – that just seems to be what they do. And when they go back to feeding, you know, they're, they hit the ground running and they – typically start feeding when they're ready. So just not, not something that you really want to stress about. Um, while they are uh, gestating and developing follicles, um, I, I kept my animals and my females would develop follicles at the same time every year. I, for whatever reason, could not get them to actually produce babies. And I never saw a lockup, but I did see a lot of courting. So I don't know what it was. Um, the, uh, the follicles in females, if you palpate, feel a little bit like little marble-sized balls. And I could count them very easily in my females. There's, you know, I've had some females with uh, five. I had one at one point. I think she had seven. Um, and so, uh, you know, every year they would do the same thing. And that's one point I did want to bring up is typically when you buy a wild-caught animal, you know, um, they settle in, you know, 90 days or whatnot. Uh, six months is a little bit longer to get these animals to settle in. But with, Sol uh, with Solomon Island tree boas, I actually think they to really um, need that time to, to experience a full season 
um, in wherever it is that you live. So if you're getting a bunch of wild caught and you're expecting to breed them that year, I think that's probably a little bit unrealistic. Um, unless your female's already gravid, uh, I would uh, I would say you probably want to get them and be real with yourself and know that you know I probably wouldn't even attempt. So if I got a group of animals in now, I probably wouldn't expect to see anything solid and until probably the following year. Um, I would take this year just to get them dialed in. Uh, you know, you could give them some panicure or flagell if you want. Um, make sure that they're feeding. Try and make sure everybody's looking right, everybody's acting right. And, you know, um, let them go through a full year and then start prepping yourself for breeding them. Um, gestation is anywhere from... Uh, six months to eight months, um, nine months, ten months on some. So you should probably expect for uh, a little bit longer gestation with these. Um, they're definitely a, a species that commands patience. Uh, these are not your churn and burn uh, animals. You're not going to be producing lots of them. You're not going to get rich off them. You're not going to be able to just, like, have, a room full of them and just be breeding the hell out of them every year and selling them and flipping them and producing them in any large volume. I mean, they take a long time to, to, to grow. Um, they um, are a slower species and litters. So they're just not a species that you're going to be able to produce in high volumes. But the fact that they're so unique to any other species I've ever worked with is one of the things that I really, really liked about them. Um, they're, a, they're a niche species. And for all you guys listening to this show, they're in a niche species. You're into the rare, misunderstood, um, you know, rarely seen species. I would say definitely go with these. And if you like arboreal animals that are polygenic and polymorphic, hey, that's even a bonus because these guys come in an array of colors from browns to grays to olive greens to like super, super red. And I've seen a few that are actually yellow or orangish in color. Um, they're not going to be as bright as a, uh, as a Hortolanus, you know, with Corallus, but um, the colors are, you know, more subtle with Candoya, a little bit more on the earth tones and whatnot, but, uh, they're very, very pretty in their own right, and unlike any other species I've ever kept. So I think that um, one of the things that I probably should have done a little bit more of experimentation with with these is food cycling. I kind of mentioned that earlier. I don't think temperature cycling is going to be the, the key with these. Um, I think we're going to really need to experiment with, with food cycling and see what happens there. Because I think that these animals are coming from a tropical climate. They're not seeing a lot of the um, temperature changes that what you see in, you know, the Mexican species and whatnot. Um, some of the animals that live in higher altitudes that see more of a, a fluctuation in temps, you know, these are not seeing that. They're seeing pretty much the same temperatures year-round, just rainfall. And, you know, as with anything, when, you know, depending on how the rain uh, fluctuates, that also 
directly correlates with the availability of food. So I think food cycling is something that you might want to explore if you're going to work with these guys. Um, you can find them fairly inexpensive. They're not they're not a very expensive species, you know. I'm thinking anywhere from 150 bucks to probably 350 bucks on the high end. Um, I sold a brick red pair uh, male and a uh, mature female uh, for 600, and they were the reddest of the red. Um, I mean, I don't think that there were anything. I had not seen anything that that matched the, how red they were um, up until that point. So just to give you guys kind of a, you know, and, and every every seller is going to price them however they want. I'm not going to debate that or anything. I'm just telling you for me that's what I did. Um, and it seems to be that the, the range is like 150 to 350 each. Um, they're really, really cool. I can't say enough uh, good things about them. Um, they can be a little frustrating on the male side for getting, you know, when they go through that fast, um, I find them to be uh, a little frustrating. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're very cool, very, very uh, placid, very easy to work with. You know, they're, you know, you get your, your temps down. And I mean, they don't, it doesn't take rocket science to be able to keep these guys and they, they stay pretty manageable size, which makes them easy to work with. Um, and, you know, I, I I don't know what's up with the with the whole slow metabolism. Maybe maybe the slow growing maybe that that does mean that they have a little slower metabolism. I'm not sure, but um, they just go through their food very quickly. So um, I don't think you need to to really you know expect to only feed these guys once a month or something like that. You know, I never had any of mine regurgitate anything. I didn't see them every week, but I was uh, in there offering food every couple weeks. And um, females, I probably fed them every 10 days or so. Um, so I, you know, I think that you uh, probably should stay away from giving them rats. Um, but with if you're offering them good-sized uh, mice, you, you shouldn't have any problems. Um, there are some people that do sell them. Uh, most of the time, with the guys that you're really wanting to get these, you're going to have to get it, get them from um, an importer, and that's going to be, you know, kind of the the, uh, the kind of the one thing that that you're going to have to to focus on is is getting them from somebody that's going to be able to. Uh, you know, you just be careful who you get them from. Um, I have a couple people that I would recommend. I think Dan Valeri is a good person to get uh, any of these from. Um, I did buy some from Cam at Bushmaster, and they all thrived for me. Um, I have bought some from other hobbyists, and some have done well, and some did not do well. So uh, I think be careful who you buy them from, and uh, you shouldn't have any issues. If you're looking to um, learn about them, go on to uh, the Candoria Corner page at on Facebook. It's a pretty tight-knit group that uh, can uh, answer questions and kind of help out. Um, I think there was also an article that came out in um, Hurt Nation magazine on Candoria. It should give some information, but... 
Uh, a lot of info out there is going to be trial and error. You know, there's not a lot that's been put out to to work with these because there's a very small number of people that are very interested in them. But I totally recommend them. I think they're a blast. They're very cool. And uh, a little bit, a little part of me died when I sold my group. Um, I just had some other things that I wanted to focus on. So this was just a short uh, show. Hopefully you guys liked it. Uh, remember, if you haven't had a chance yet, go on to uh, Patreon and pledge your support. And um, that's www.patreon.com forward slash Kralis Radio. And um, my name is Jeff, and I will be back again here soon. I'm going to try and get Ben Russo on to talk about some of the other Candoria species. I really appreciate you guys tuning in. And as you know, Kralis Radio is brought to you by Reptile Basis Incorporated and Cold-Blooded Cafe. Thanks again.